Hey, everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 191 of the John Riley Project. Hey, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're broadcasting as we always do from the city and the country. Not sure if that label still applies, but that's what we all say here. The city and the country, Poway, California. How you doing? It's hump day. We're like about a week out from Thanksgiving and, uh, but we've got a lot of great things in store for you today. We're going to talk about canceling student debt, and that's been in the news lately. So I've got a bunch of comments on that particular topic. We're also going to kind of do a general news update. I've got some thoughts on um, some of the movement in the front office of the San Diego Padres. There's been sort of a a slight ownership change that I think is worth commenting on a little bit about the NBA draft tonight, you know, cause we're all interested in how that's going to go down uh, some thoughts on president Trump and the rally here in Poway and some of his latest uh, um, announcements. I've got some thoughts on streaming TV and, Ah, just a whole bunch of other things. So we'll see if we can fit it all into an exciting episode. But thanks again for joining us. Um, really appreciate your cooperation, your input, your support. Of course, this is live streamed every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 o'clock. That means it's a live stream. That means you can join in. So if you want to participate in the discussion, you can go ahead and click um, in the comments area on Facebook or YouTube, and we will see the comments. They'll pop up on my screen. I'll read them on the air, and we'll have a bit of a discussion. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting doing this podcast Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two, I'm biting off probably a little more than I can chew, but I'm really happy I am doing this because I think it's a challenge for me and, and I like challenging myself. I think it's a lot of fun doing this podcast. I enjoy the self-expression. I enjoy some of the community outreach we're doing. And I don't know, I think this is a platform for a lot of other things that I can do in my future. So, um, but, you know, I'll tell you what, like this morning, I'm thinking, what am I going to talk about? I'm not sure. And I had some thoughts bouncing around in my head. And a lot of this sort of came together in the last few hours. So really happy I have a chance to share it with you. But I do want to give a big shout out, a big thank you to my guests on Monday, Jamie Tobit and Todd Felton from the it was the uh, Imperial Sands Garrison of the 501st Legion and these were the the group of of Star Wars enthusiasts that dress up as members of the evil empire and they go out into the community doing charity work and making people smile and I just I had a great time uh, on that podcast conversation with Jamie and with Todd. So if you have a chance, go back, check out episode 190, especially if you're a Star Wars fan. You know, it's got me thinking, you know, should I join the group? What who should I dress up as? I was thinking, well, I got a little bit of gray hair. Maybe I can be Count Dooku uh, or maybe just a Tuscan Raider, you know, like one of those sand people. So I, I'm going to give this some thought, but I think they'll be kind of fun. You know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I, I just thought what they're doing is spectacular. The, the intricacy and the detail they put into their costume making was tremendous. So uh, yeah, big shout out for those guys um, from the Imperial Sands Garrison, which is essentially the San Diego chapter of the 501st Legion um, what a great group. So I really enjoyed that. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about canceling student debt. Uh, 
And this is in the news right now. And, you know, of course, our friends on the left, our more progressive friends, the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the supporters of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are all about canceling student debt, making tuition, making college tuition free. And you knew Biden, of course, is is not one of the lefties. He's kind of more of a moderate Democrat. Maybe some might call a corporate Democrat. Well, I was I was joking with some friends online this morning. Like, look at Biden. He he um voted for the crime, he wrote the crime bill that has resulted in tremendous criminal injustice that has led to protests in the street and a whole Black Lives Matter movement to uh, change the system, largely caused by Biden. Um, You also got a uh, Biden who voted for the Iraq war, Um, Biden who has appointed people to his transition team that were supportive of the cages on the southern border, supportive of family separation at the southern border. It makes you wonder, did the Democrats really win? And maybe the Republicans actually won. But, you know, even though uh, Biden is a bit of is, is a bit of a more of a moderate Democrat, the progressives are going to be hound dogging him the whole time. You know, that's going to be true. And so when the progressives are going to be hound dogging him for, you know, in this case, canceling student debt. And most people think, well, you can't possibly do that, especially if the Republicans are still in control of the Senate. And I guess we're going to find out, you know, in early January when the runoffs happen in in Georgia. But still, there's no way that would pass the Republican Senate. Right. Well, now they're saying that Biden could do it. By decree, by executive order, which, again, always rankles me because these are the people that claim that they're all about democracy um, and yet they want to circumvent democracy and not have votes in Congress and instead have the president rule by decree, uh, rule as an authoritarian through executive order. But the the lefties want Biden to do that. And some are calling for a $10,000 reduction on student debt. Some are calling for a $50,000 reduction in student debt. And, you know, I understand this is a problem. This, This whole college education, the cost of education, how people pay for it, is a really big problem. And I understand why some people are rightfully upset. You know, you got people that have graduated from college that have tens of thousands of dollars of debt, sometimes over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. And now we've got the pandemic and they're not working and yet they've got those payments they've got to make. And, and unlike a lot of other debt you can accumulate, you can't even wash this away with bankruptcy. It's permanently attached to your record. And this is like you're carrying around a, you know, a a ball and chain to a degree. And so I understand why people are rightfully upset, flabbergasted. Oh my God, this, this shouldn't exist. I shouldn't have this debt. They should figure out a way to wipe away the debt. And we hear this over and over again, and they rationalize it. They say, well, it'll be good for the economy, and there'll be people have more money to spend, and they're going to put it into the economy. That's going to make things better. And then they're not going to be burdened with this debt, and that's going to be morally the right thing to do. And they're trying to make these moral cases, moral rationalization for the canceling of student debt. And it's so pervasive. I mean, there's tens of millions of people in America that have significant amounts of debt. Um, And so there's a lot of support for this. But 
I I keep hearing this. I keep thinking it's just like it just seems very gimmicky to me. It seems like here's a case where people want more free stuff and they want to have their debt um, erased as though they think it's like, well, yeah, the president can just wave a magic wand and the debt goes away. But that's not what happens. The debt doesn't go away. The money was loaned to these students from banks and those banks got a essentially a guarantee from the government. So either way, those banks are going to get paid. So what ends up happening is, is that by if they ended up canceling student debt, what will end up happening is, is they're just going to shift the debt to other people. It's not going to be erased. It's going to be moved. It's going to be a transfer of the debt, essentially a transfer of the obligation, the burden, the responsibility of the debt to other people. And if you think of it in those terms, you're thinking that's that's outrageous. That's that's immoral. You've got people that are completely innocent and they're the ones they're going to ultimately having to be paying taxes and everything else to pay for it. Now, and never mind the fact that canceling student debt doesn't solve the core problem. The core problem, of course, is the fact that college is just too damn expensive. Why in the heck is college so outrageously priced? Why is college going up at um, higher and higher rates of of increase um, far greater than the rate of inflation? Why is that? That's the problem that needs to be solved is how we can make college more affordable. But if you just simply wipe away the debt, cancel the debt, you essentially shift it to someone else, but college still remains remains expensive. And if this cancellation of student debt isn't just a one-time thing, but it happens every year that more and more college debt gets canceled, well, then the universities have no incentive to lower their prices because people are still going to get education. They're going to pay top dollar and then the debt will get canceled. It gets shifted over to someone else. The universities still make their money. So it doesn't incentivize lower prices either. In fact, it just, it's a bandaid. It, it covers up over the problem. So I, I just want to go through a bunch of examples about this because think about when you want to get a, a student loan, Right now, it's easy to get a student loan. It's remarkably easy. Um, a lot of it's because you can't wipe it away in bankruptcy. It doesn't just go away. But I, I saw that, heard this analogy. I thought this was really good. Is imagine if you're an 18 year old and you just got out of high school and you want to start a business and you go to the bank and you say, Mr. Banker, I'd like to borrow a hundred thousand dollars because I want to start this business. What do you think the banker would say to that person? that 18-year-old that just got out of high school, he'd say, no way. There's no way we're giving you $100,000 to start a business. But if you are a student and you say, I need to borrow $100,000 to go to college, the bank will write it up right away for you. Now, a big part of the reason is, is the bank is guaranteed that they're going to get paid back, um, which some might think that's a good thing. But what it does is it shifts the risk to other people. In this case, it shifts it to taxpayers, to other people in society. So, you know, some people will say that um, erasing student debt, canceling student debt is the moral thing to do. Uh, the college education, it shouldn't cost this much. It, it should be free because 
This is, you know, we live in a society, so it should be free. And besides these other nations, they do it for free. Well, it's not free. I mean, there's no such thing as free because someone has to pay. You know, the, the, the professors, the administrators, the whole college experience costs money. So someone's got to pay. So when people say they want it to be free, I mean, that's just ridiculous. But at any rate, when we see people say, well, we, we, it's the moral thing to do to cancel this student debt. Well, is it really? Okay. Because what happened, like with, with K through 12 education, basically everyone goes to school, right? I mean, there's some exceptions, but overall everyone goes, but for college, Nowhere even close does everyone go. There are lots of people that don't go to college and they pursue any variety of other careers. They may go in the military. They may go into their family business. Maybe they have interests in being an auto mechanic or maybe they have interests in going into construction or there's other parts of our economy that don't require a college degree that people pursue. I mean, some people just don't like to go to school and they they just want to work in the service economy. And for them, that's fine. Well, the problem is, is that when you want to cancel student debt, you shift the burden to taxpayers. So then people that never went to college end up carrying a, a portion of that burden so other people could go for free. And the crazy part of it is, is that the people that are going to college are typically coming out with good degrees, in many cases, getting extraordinarily high paying jobs and then making a tremendous amount of money. So now you not only have blue collar, middle class people paying taxes so other people can go to college, you have blue collar, middle class people that didn't go to college paying taxes so future rich people can get their education for free. To, I mean, that, in my opinion, is immoral. That, to me, should make this idea of, of canceling student debt. It's immoral at its core because it shifts the responsibility to other people. I mean, imagine, um, you know, you own a car and man, you got a car payment every month and it's, you know, what I know, $300 a month, it's $250 a month. And that's a burden. I need that car because I got to get to work every day. And if I didn't have that car, I'm SOL, man. Um, I'm shit out of luck. I've got to have a car. But I don't make enough money and I'm having trouble making the car payment. What if they canceled auto debt? Well, that sounds great. If you own the car, man, suddenly you don't have to pay for it. But what ends up happening is, is you shift the, the payment to other people. Other people have to absorb that. They either have to pay the tax because if the government's going to cancel the debt or if the finance company for some crazy reason decides to forgive your debt, well, then the finance company's absorbing the cost. They're taking a punch in the nose if they do that. So in any, any way you slice it, if someone has taken on debt and then suddenly it's erased, it's canceled, it shifts the burden to other people. I mean, heck, I live here in a house. Our mortgage payment isn't cheap. Um, wouldn't it be great if mortgage debt was canceled. But then if mortgage debt was canceled, you'd have people that are renters paying for, for my mortgage. That wouldn't be fair. You'd also have people that own a home and paid off their mortgage that would be responsible for paying for mine. 
you know, and that's the thing with student debt. Um, you not only would you have if student debt was canceled, not only would middle class, in many cases, blue collar families that don't go to college be paying for rich kids or the future rich to have their education canceled or their tuition and debt canceled. But in other cases, you've got people that went to college, paid for their college, took on student debt and paid it off. They did the responsible thing. They fulfilled their agreement with the company that loaned them the money, or maybe they didn't borrow money. Maybe they save money or maybe they work their way through college. You're making it so those people that did the right thing, the responsible thing, are the ones that have to bear a proportional burden to pay for someone else's education. So the the people that were responsible end up getting penalized. Again, it seems very immoral. I mean, it sounds on the surface, it sounds wonderful. Oh my God, cancel student debt. Just wave a magic wand and it poof, it goes away. But that's not what really happens because follow the money. Someone has to pay. And when they talk about canceling it, I, I just think it's, it's, un, it's fundamentally immoral. And it doesn't address the structural problem. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about this before, but the structural problems with education, it's just too damn expensive. I mean, education prices have been skyrocketing. And it was interesting is, you know, when my, my children, I have one just graduated from college last year. The other one is still in school. But back around, you know, 2015 or so, maybe 2014, we were doing college visits and they walk you around campus and everything. And it seemed like they were when you go on those tours, they were showing you everything possible that was sort of unrelated to education. I mean, I can't tell you how many of these colleges we visited that had state of the art recreational facilities, workout facilities, fitness facilities. It seemed that every one of these universities had this amazing rock wall (laughs) that was built indoors. And boy, they love sharing that because it got kids excited that wanted to go because they had all the cool stuff there. But that's part of the reason why college has gotten so expensive, because there's so much um, spending, so much focus on things that are outside the scope of education itself. That's why if you look at a university, you're going to see a dramatic increase in the number of non-teaching employees of administrative people uh, to manage all these facilities and run all these extracurricular programs, all of these things that really are disconnected from the getting the degree itself, which should be the whole point that you're there. So college is becoming more and more expensive for a lot of those reasons. Um, But on top of it, college is getting more and more expensive. It's like, you know, we'll go back to one of my college courses, Economics 101, right? Um, Econ 101. Well, for me, it was macroeconomics. It was uh, Econ 2A, if I recall, at UC San Diego. And uh, it's supply and demand, right? So if there's great demand for going to college and there's limited supply, then what happens? Prices go up. And that's another big part of the problem. Um, Our society has 
not has been pushing and pushing more and more people to go to college. In some cases, you know, it's from good parents trying to encourage their children to get a degree. In, in other cases, the the economy and corporate America has been set up where a college degree is like a minimum requirement. But even more so, the availability of these call these student loans, like the the hundred thousand dollar loan I talked about before, it, they're just so easy to get that there's all this money being thrown at it. So suddenly you've got students that, you know, suddenly have a lot of money to go to college and they're just thinking about going to the best school. They're not thinking about the return on their investment. That's not their method of thinking this through unless their parents happen to educate them on it. They just know they got a loan. They figured, Oh, all my expenses are covered. It's not till they get out of college when they start getting those bills and then they go gulp. What did I sign up for? But the, 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 the ease of availability of these college loans sounds good to people that want to help out the disadvantaged and the poor. But what it ends up doing is it creates more students that want to go to school. And there are more and more students that want to get into these colleges that have limited availability. So again, that increases the price. Um, so there's a lot of structural problems like this, whether they're in society in corporate America in terms of what is a minimum requirement for a white collar job. Um, there are structural issues with the way universities conduct their business. There are structural issues with the way college is financed, but all of them are working in such a way to incentivize the price increase of college. Now, it is interesting that if you were to look at some of the industries that have some of the greatest inflation, and it's usually real estate, it's usually college tuition, college textbooks, and it's often healthcare, right? Those are the ones that are growing exponentially at far greater than the rate of inflation. What do all three of those industries have in common? Real estate, college, or higher education and uh, healthcare. All three of them have tremendous government involvement. All three of them have tremendous central planning of systems to try to manipulate the system. And what ends up happening are all these unintended consequences of high prices. Because the more and more they try to manipulate the system to appeal to certain, certain pressure groups, certain special interests, that has the effect of creating higher prices, especially when the government is the one funding it. So those people that are providing those services, there's no incentive to lower the price. That's why like in Medicare Part D with prescription drugs, that's why the prices are not negotiable because the system has been rigged that way, largely because of the central planning um, authority of government and how it's manipulated and misused and has unintended consequences. So um, what really needs to happen, in my opinion, is we need to have structural reform um, of the system. And part of this, we're seeing uh, one of the, the silver linings of the COVID crisis is that there's more and more people that are doing online education. And for some types of courses, online education is great. Online education works, works wonderful. 
Now, that doesn't apply to every situation. I mean, you can't do a biology lab in an online class. Um, but in many other cases, it works perfectly fine. I remember when I was a student and I was in a lecture hall. I remember, what was it, USB 2722? It, it was uh, right there in the Ravel Plaza at UCSD. There was like 250 people in that classroom taking a calculus class or a physics or a chemistry class or or a macroeconomics class. Um no reason those classes couldn't be online. And imagine if we had more online opportunities, then you don't need all that infrastructure at the school. You don't need all that overhead of administrative. I mean, you'll need a little bit for IT, but not much, not much relative to all the things that they're building on these campuses. So the, one of the beauties, one of the silver linings of this COVID crisis has been um, this notion of telecommuting, whether it's for online education or in other cases, for your work, which I've talked about a lot in this podcast. That's one of the structural reforms we can have is greater access to schools at a much lower price by doing it online. Um, the other thing that can be done is that, yeah, we can expand more supply. I mean, there's there's opportunities to grow and have more colleges, but a lot of times the accreditation is too difficult. And then if private schools are created and people get upset if they're for profit and they start, you know, comparing them to Trump University. But there should be an easier way to expand access to to, to college. And if, if not by creating more colleges, then certainly by taking the existing schools and expanding access through online education. That could um, address the supply. But at the same time, I think there's an opportunity to address the demand. Then this is a major structural reform, and we're starting to see a little bit of it, where corporate America, lately you've been seeing that there's less of a need for a college education. It's still important. I would recommend a college education to anyone that asks me. But... Um, what we're seeing in the marketplace today is that really skills are more important. Skills and experience are more important than the degree itself. So, you know, consider an employer that's hiring and is looking for a programmer that um, has experience in, I'm going to use, I'm going to get a little ancient language here, but like C++, you know, some specific programming language. And you've got a student that came out of college, has never had a job before. And meanwhile, you've got another person who never went to college, but was self-taught um, and learned from others and has been an experienced C++ programmer, C++ programmer, and had developed all of these applications. And that person can show the, the, the employer at the interview all of the things that they've done. Who is that employer likely to hire? Most likely the one that has the skills because the employer wants to have a return on investment. The employer wants to get that new employee up to speed as fast as possible and not have to train them any further. So the beauty, this is another beauty of technology, is that there are so many classes that are available today for students that they can gain these skills in very unique categories that are ultimately, you know, marketable that are marketable right away that don't require a college degree. And these skills, these training courses that are available online can be had for a tiny fraction of a college degree. You know, so whether a person wants to become educated and skilled in specific computer programming languages or in any uh, other a number of disciplines, and there are companies like Skillshare, 
that that's all they do is online education. And you'll take a class there. It might cost you 500 bucks, maybe a thousand bucks, maybe a little bit more, but compare that to the cost of your tuition. Um, for a public school, you know, your tuition, not counting community college, but a public school tuition is at least 10 or $12,000. And if, and if you're at a UC, it's in the, it's, um, it's much higher. And then if you are going to a private school, oh my God, the tuition could be 30,000, $40,000 a year. And that doesn't even count room and board and, and everything else. Um, but imagine doing something like Skillshare and getting specific skills in, in unique categories that can make you instantly more marketable in the job market. Those now I'm not saying that's the right answer for everybody. I would still encourage a college degree for anyone uh, as a way to better yourself. But for those people that are looking for a more cost efficient way to do it, that's an alternative. And it may be a really good alternative for people that um, are transitioning from one career to the next and don't have the opportunity to work full time and get a four year degree. So there's the beauty right now is technology is changing the landscape. Technology is providing greater opportunities for students. The key is, is if the universities are going to adapt to that and embrace it. And we're seeing some of it. But I think through this COVID crisis, it's really kind of forcing the issue. Um, but there's other things that I think that can be done. I think in society, we should be in, in, in high school, amongst families, amongst mentors, we should be encouraging entrepreneurship as much as possible uh, because, Entrepreneurship is a way that people can make money on their own to be self-employed so that they can dictate their own career and their own game plan moving forward. Um, in many ways, they're going to make more money as a self-employed person than they would working for the man. Imagine getting certain skills and then transforming those skills into a business. Uh, the opportunities could be significantly better than going to a four-year private school having $200,000 worth of debt and graduating with an English literature degree. I mean, English literature degrees are valuable and important and, and um, are, are especially uh, valuable to people that have a passion for that. But an English literature degree is probably not going to generate a lot of income unless that person happens to be very entrepreneurial, that can turn that degree into uh, becoming an author or becoming a screenwriter or to do a lot of other things where they can take their uh, liberal arts degree and turn it into something more magical. That's hard to do, um, but that, that needs to be the approach. If we have more entrepreneurial mindset, there's going to be, again, less demand and less need for a college degree in some categories. And if we're able to do that and kind of relax the demand, um, then the prices will come down. If we are able to not make these college loans so easy, so accessible, if the, the money wasn't so readily available, then there would be a lot less demand on these universities and they would have to lower prices to attract more students. They couldn't continue to jack up prices. So we need to find ways to adjust the supply and demand. There are a few other things I think that can be done. I mean, I think it's pretty much outrageous that a student loan is, I think you can't refinance it. That's my understanding. You know, we can refinance our, our home loan and we can have interest rates that are 
you know, 2%, 3% these days are really low. Uh, but student loans are often like 8%. My understanding is they can't be refinanced. And then on top of it, you can't declare bankruptcy. So now, again, I'm no fan of bankruptcy. I've been on the other end of bankruptcy where my customers have declared bankruptcy and screwed me out of money. Uh, that was painful. That was during the Great Recession. And that was difficult. But if college loans were eligible for bankruptcy, then co- then banks wouldn't be giving them out so frivolously. You know, they may only decide to give them the people that are going to be pursuing degrees, you know, in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, where there's going to be a, a greater opportunity to earn a lot of that money back. So if the if the, the system right now is rigged, I mean, the bankers win no matter what. If you may win or lose, depending on what you end up doing, the bankers always win. They're like the casino in Vegas. They never lose. They always come out ahead. Well, unless you're Donald Trump and you're running casinos in Atlantic City. But at any rate, um, the system is set up right now and in, in many ways rigged to all of these special interests. But if we just cancel student debt, and we don't fix those core problems, then education is still going to be expensive and, and people in the future are going to be accruing debt and that's going to be a problem for them. So the, the other interesting idea that I heard about this that I think is really worth exploring is making college education tax deductible to the same, to the same way that um, education in corporate America is tax deductible. Because if you're a employee at a co- of a company and then you go for away for corporate training or you hire a trainer to bring them in. I mean, that's an, that's a, an expense. That's a write offable expense for a company. And so it becomes a tax deductible investment, but college is limited to how much it's tax deductible. Now imagine if, if a, let, let's just make up some numbers. Let's say you had $30,000 in debt. Imagine if that $30,000 can be written off of your tax payments in the future. And you might say, well, that sounds interesting. That's a way to kind of save money on the back end. But you might think, well, you know, your first few years out of college, you're still not making that much money and you you wouldn't earn enough money to make it so you could write off, you know, that debt in, in, in a way that was meaningful. Well, imagine if you could repackage the way that's amortized so that you could write it off, you know, in your higher earning years. And then it would really make a lot of sense. Um, That way people would maybe have debt they take on going through college. You know, they're bearing their own responsibility, but then down the road, they pay less in taxes. Um, To me, that's a good thing. Um, That way they are still paying for their education. um, But if the government wants to be involved, that's to me one way to do it. Now, ideally, the government isn't involved in the first place. Um, So, you know, again, I I welcome your thoughts and comments on, on this live stream. You know, we're talking about canceling student debt. Let me know your thoughts. Um, You know, I'll I'll just share my experience. Um, I went to college in the eighties. And back then, you know, you know, know, tuitions was a lot less. I think when I went to UCSD, um, the, you know, we paid tuition by the quarter. There were three quarters plus the summer. Um, and the tuition was like around 400 something a month. And that was just for tuition. That didn't include books that didn't include, 
uh, room and board. So when you added that up, it was, it was a lot more, but it wasn't anywhere near what it costs now. Um, it's just a fraction of it back then. Uh, but then, you know, people earned a lot less money, you know, so things are relative now, granted, I think it was more affordable then than it is now, but back then my parents helped me out, you know, to a degree, but I worked my entire way through college. Um, I worked at the bike shop on campus. I later worked in the cafeterias on campus. Uh, I think I was employed in some way, shape or form my entire five years at UCSD, um, I made, uh, I had two really big wins when I was working as a college student. One, when I was, I took on a, uh, an internship at Logicon, a defense contractor in Sorrento Valley. Back then, the minimum wage was like around three seventy-five an hour. And I was making eight bucks an hour, which back then in the mid eighties, that was a lot for, you know, a 19 year old kid. Uh, and it was a great, uh, internship program. I learned a ton. It was only for, well, actually, it was part-time for the year, and then in the summer, I did full-time. But I was only there for about six to nine months, if I recall. But that was a great job. Um, I also had a job in college where I uh, was a tutor, and I tutored high school students that went to La Jolla High, and I tutored them in math. And my degree is in mathematics and computer science. So I was helping them with geometry and trig and calculus. And I really enjoyed that. And I first started working for a tutoring company. And then later, as I built relationships, I was able to freelance and I was referred to other people and was kind of just doing it on my own. And that was, I was making good money on like, like 20 bucks a half an hour. And that was under the table. Uh, so it was cash right in your pocket. And I was, you know, essentially this is in, you know, in La Jolla where there's a lot of wealth and all of those parents want their children to get good grades so they can go on to college and they were willing to pay. Um, so that turned out to be a great degree or a great gig for me when I was going through college. And then as a student, depending on what was going on in my life, I could accelerate or decelerate the amount of work that I did, depending on my financial needs and my time availability. So it was like a, a gig economy job. And it was perfect when I was in college. Um, but I had a couple of other interesting jobs when I was in college, too. Um, and, you know, I would go down to the job board at UCSD and just see what was there. And there were really sometimes just crazy things. And for a while, I was a mascot for a cookie company. And this was um, in downtown San Diego. It was right across the street from Horton Plaza. And there was a company there called the Big Chipper. And this woman who started it was trying to be essentially like a Mrs. Fields and create chocolate chip cookies. And it was and this is in the probably around 1985, 86. And I did it during the summer and I would go there and I would dress up in a cookie costume and I put on brown leggings and leotards. And I had this giant, I don't know, cookie. It might've been four foot wide and half of me was dunked in chocolate that was dark brown. And the bottom half was like a, a tan color, like a cookie. And I had these Velcro chocolate chips that were attached to me. And I go around downtown and I would hand out these tokens to people for free cookies. And then they would come in and, and get them. And then I would also, if a, if an office in downtown San Diego, like an, you know, accounting firm or a, a legal firm, uh, sometimes they would order cookies and I would deliver them. And, uh, it was fun and it was a good job for a student. I enjoyed it. 
And the other one that I had that this was a crazy one is uh, I was a private detective. And I, again, I think I got this at the job board at UCSD. And it was a guy that was he lived out of town uh, or he frequently was out of town. And he was dating a woman who lived in the La Jolla, like Regents area, you know, just east of campus. And there were some apartments or condos over there. And she was a recovering alcoholic and she would often have lapses and fall off the deep end um, with her alcoholism. And the guy who was the boyfriend, and, and this is a couple, they were like, I think the guy was in his fifties and the woman was in her forties. And here I am, I'm like 20, 21 years old. And when the guy got a feeling that his girlfriend was about to go into a binge and start really boozing, um, he would call me. And then my job was to drive over to her, um, you know, block. And I wouldn't, I knew what her, which, which one was her car. And I knew that she was sometimes walk her dog around the block and I would just be there and just keep an eye. And if she ever left, then I was supposed to call my, uh, my customer and let him know. It was a great job because I would just, I had my old beat up 1968 Chevy pickup and I would park, you know, on that street and I just do my homework and I just watch and I would do it for three, four hours at a time. And then I'd leave and then he would pay me. He would send me money in the mail. And it was an interesting little gig. And, and this is right around the time I remember I met my wife and we were both students at UCSD. And I was telling her about this job I had as a detective and she didn't believe me. And I said, well, why don't you come with me? I said, just bring your homework with you. And sure enough, the two of us sat there and I told her the whole deal. And then we were there doing our homework, minding our own business. And we saw the woman come out and walk around the block and it was all good. And I eventually called the guy back. And this is before we had cell phones. So I had to like get a pay phone and everything else it was more cumbersome. But there was one time that she uh, I, I, I went to show up when he thought that she might go on a binge. And sure enough, her car wasn't there. And I called him and I said, Hey, what's going on? And he goes, you need to go down to Pacific beach. And I know a couple of, of drinking holes that she goes to and you need to go down there. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm Jim Rockford, you know, I'm like driving around and trying to find this woman. And, and I went down in, into this one bar and I didn't see her. Um, you know, I didn't go in, I was looking for the car. I didn't see the car. And then I called him back and he goes, no, try this place, try that place. Eventually I found her car and it was right next to like, I don't know, it was like the beachcomber. It was one of the ones um, right along. The, is that mission? It's mission Boulevard. Or, I always get them confused, but it was the one, you know, the, the main coastal road there that goes right along the edge of, of the beach and eventually goes into mission beach. There was a bar there that she had her car parked at and I called him and then he came hustling down and, and then he said, you, you can go home now. Uh, but I, yeah, I did that in college too. So I was always hustling in college, always trying to make money. And that's the money that I use to, to live, you know, and my parents helped me out where they could. Uh, but a lot of it I earned on my own. Um, and 
you know, for some kids in college, the money they earned on their job was kind of like they're spending money, but I use my money to pay my rent and pay my gas. And, and in some cases, you know, went in my checking account, my parents gave me a little bit whenever they could, but a lot of times they couldn't. Um, so I was able to make do and I kind of, I, I scrounged and scrapped and clawed my whole way through college. Now, can students do that now? It's harder, definitely harder uh, to work your way while you're in college, um, but it's still possible. And it's possible that, you know, if you have to work your way through college, that maybe you don't go to, uh, you know, a private university with tuition, room and board going to cost you 60 grand a year. Um, if that's your case, then maybe you go to a community college for a couple of years where it's extremely affordable. And then maybe you get your degree from a state college like um, San Diego State, Cal State San Marcos, um, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. This, the state college system here in California is very good. And relatively speaking, very affordable. So there are ways to get through college and to get come out with a great degree and to do it much more economically, even with the way the system is built today and the way it is rigged. So um, I just thought I'd share a little bit. Those are my stories as I went through college. Oh, the other job I had is I worked at the uh, sports arena. And this was when I was a freshman in college. And I uh, sold popcorn and soda up and down the aisles at the San Diego sports arena during the San Diego Clipper games and the San Diego soccer's games. And then when they had truck pulls and concerts, I did that. And that was a lot of fun, uh, especially because I was a, a big NBA basketball fan and we would only have to work for the three first three quarters. And then the final quarter, I could sit in the arena and watch the rest of the game. And back then the Clippers were just awful. Right. And uh, but it was still a great time. And whenever the Lakers or the Celtics were in town, and remember, this is like 1982, 83, when the Celtics and, 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 and Lakers were in town, the place was jam packed. It was rocking. But, you know, when the San Antonio Spurs would play, it was pretty quiet in there, but it was still a great job. And I had a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I was able to you know, they guaranteed you a certain amount of money. I think I was guaranteed like 15 bucks for the shift. But then if I sold a lot, if I sold beyond the minimum threshold, then I was able to earn commissions and actually walk away with more money. So some nights I'd make 25 bucks and I only be there for a few hours. So I'd be effectively making 12 and a half bucks an hour. Back then the minimum wage was less than four an hour. So it was actually a great job for a college student. Uh, but then, you know, the, that whole situation changed. And, you know, as a college student, I bounced around a lot, you know, kind of, you know, by my own wits and made it work. Um, but still, I think today it's, it's a lot harder today. Um, college is way the hell too damn expensive. And I worry that canceling student debt won't solve the problem. It'll just cover it up. And it will just encourage the system to continue to be more and more expensive. Okay, so, wow, I went like 45 minutes on that topic. I had no idea I was going to go that long. But, um, again, I, I invite your comments uh, here on the live stream. Of course, if you like what you're seeing, like what you're listening to, give us a thumbs up. Uh, you know, give us a like, a share, a subscribe. We always appreciate it. Um, there are a few other things I want to talk about, and I think I can move through these pretty rapidly. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the big news today that uh, Ron Fowler, the CEO of the San Diego Padres, is stepping down maybe one notch. He's no longer going to be the chairman of the board, but he's 
now the vice chairman. And that Peter Seidler has kind of bought up some of Ron Fowler's equity. And now Peter Seidler is going to be the number one guy for the Padres. And wow, it's pretty amazing. Um, but it was interesting thinking about Ron Fowler and I think he's had ownership or, you know, the, the main guy for the, for the Padres probably since around 2014. The team is so much better now than it used to be. In fact, I think you can make a really good argument that Ron Fowler might be the best professional sports owner that San Diego has ever had. And I was going through the list. I mean, like the Padres had C. Arnold Smith, who, you know, he got in trouble with the law. And then there was Ray Kroc and later Joan Kroc. And they were good people and had money, but they were always throwing money at big time free agents. They didn't really build a system. Uh, John, uh, who came after that? Was it John Moores that saved the Padres? And he got them to the 98 World Series. And that was good. But still, there was no really good farm system, no infrastructure. Um, Tom Werner, actually, Tom Werner was in between the Crocs and, um, and and the Moors. And Tom Werner, remember, was the producer of Roseanne. And he had the fire sale, and we got rid of all of our great talent when he was here. And then he had Roseanne sing the, the national anthem when she spit and grabbed her crotch. I mean, Tom Werner's era here was a disgrace. Uh, Moore's was good, but he only did so much. Moore's helped bring us to Petco Park. Uh, then there was the, um, uh, who was, oh, it was Jeff Morad had the ownership of the team for a while, but he was buying it on layaway and it was on the cheap and, and he didn't do well. And finally, uh, we had Ron Fowler and Peter Seidler, Ron Fowler in the number one seat. And he was the one that m- made the right investments and built this uh, great farm system, hired A.J. Preller. Um, you know, and there's been some, you know, questionable moves along the way, but overall, I mean, the Padres are in a really great spot. So, and then compare them to the charger ownership. I mean, Baron Hilton, now granted the chargers won the AFC, AFL in 63 under Baron Hilton, but it was still kind of a minor league back then. Then there was the Eugene Klein, um, uh, ownership era that was, you know, largely, you know, frustrating years. And then uh, the Spanoses, of course, uh, owned the team and and eventually drove them out of San Diego and crushed San Diego's spirit. And then you look at the Clippers and they had Donald Sterling. I mean, who was just a, um, a scoundrel, a racist, a, just an awful human being. And he uh, drove the team out of San Diego as well. So, it's no wonder we have a San Diego sports curse because there's been so much terrible ownership of teams here in in the community. Now, granted, some have been better than others. The Crocs were good people and they tried their best. But I think Ron Fowler, I think you can make an argument that he has been the best professional sports owner in the history of San Diego. And I, I, I have great um, hope and, 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 uh, I think Peter Seidler taking the reins, I think he's going to take it to a new level because I think he is even more passionate about making this team win. And he also has more financial resources to throw at it. So I think that's good. Um, I think another thing that I'm really looking forward to today is today is the NBA draft and uh, San Diego State uh, alumni uh, or alum, I should say, uh, Malachi Flynn is likely to be taken in the first round. So I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to start about five o'clock tonight. So I'll be watching that. And then San Diego State basketball is going to be starting one week from tonight. They're going to open up against UCLA 
And man, they've got a brutal schedule, but it's going to be really entertaining. They're going to be playing UCLA and UC Irvine and Arizona State and BYU and St. Mary's. Um, and then they plus they've got some you know tough games against Colorado State, um, which are definitely some of the better one of the better teams in the Mountain West. And that's all before we get to New Year's. Um, so these next this next month and a half is going to be fantastic for Aztec fans. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, just a couple other things to bounce around. Um, I want to talk about President Trump. And uh, I'm, I, if you follow my podcast, you know I'm not a big fan of Trump, but I will give him a, a you know some kudos. He's going to bring some of the troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. You know he he campaigned on ending those wars, and I've been a huge opponent of these wars. They've been just a terrible policy for this country, and have led to, you know, untold deaths um, of, of people on the other side of the globe, not, not counting deaths of Americans and just a huge waste of taxpayer dollars. And Trump campaigned on ending those wars and he never did a damn thing about it. And his term in office is almost up. Well, now he's talking about removing a few thousand of those troops, but he would still leave thousands of them there. I wish he'd bring them all home. Um, but by bringing some of them home, that's incremental progress. But by leaving some there, it just keeps the door open for Biden to send more troops out there. And, you know, Biden voted for the Iraq war. Biden has shown to be a hawk at times. Um, in many ways, the Democrats are just as hawkish as the Republicans in terms of pursuing war. I mean, we certainly saw that with President Obama, where he expanded the Afghan war and the drone war. Um, Trump expanded the drone war, too. So I worry, you know, when Biden gets in office that it's going to this boondoggle will continue. But at least we're seeing some backwards movement, some addition by subtraction. I like that. Um, the other thing with Trump that was interesting is. Over the weekend, there was a huge rally here in Poway. And, you know, we talk about the Poway protesters often out there, the intersection of Pomerado and Twin Peaks. And boy, leading up to the election, it just got more and more heated. And I did a number of podcasts on those folks out there. Well, since the election was is, you know, essentially over. I mean, I think there's some people think that Trump still has a chance, but I, I think <laughs> you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than that Trump is going to end up being victorious. Uh, but since the election, the Trump people have stayed out there and they and was like about a week and a half ago, I drove by that intersection. There were people in the rain holding up their Trump flags. Well, this past weekend, you know, there were Trump rallies all around the United States. There was a huge rally in Washington, D.C., and these people are out there. Um, you know, not only showing their love for Trump, but they're also protesting the election. They're thinking that the election was stolen, that there was fraud, and they're pushing that narrative. And and because they had the big rally in Washington, D.C. and a number of other places around the country, the San Diego County Republicans organized a big rally for the Trump supporters here in Poway. And that was on Sunday. And it's amazing. I mean, we, we see these people out there. And like I've said, I, I love the free expression. And I, when I drive by there, I love seeing people passionate and, and sharing, you know, their message, their, their love, or maybe their hate or whatever it is. If they're doing it in a positive way, I love that. But I still wonder, it's like, come on, people. I mean, 
the election is over. Okay. I mean, we got to go through the formality of verification of these votes. I think a lot of these lawsuits that uh, the Republicans and Trump um, have presented in some of these states have already been withdrawn um, because they're not finding the fraud that they claimed was there. I think now Trump's only hope is that the Electoral College ends up voting against the will of the people. The likelihood of that happening is slim to none. So it makes me wonder how long are we going to see the Trump supporters out there um, on the intersection of Twin Peaks and Palmerado? Because you figure at some point, you know, they're going to lose the wind in their sails. And we saw that with the Democrats, you know, that were originally out there protesting the Iraq war when George W. Bush was president. And then, you know, of course, the minute Obama was elected, they disappeared, even though Obama expanded the Afghan war and extended the Iraq war far longer than he promised. Those protesters disappeared uh, and then reemerged when Trump uh, showed up. But, uh, you know, you figure at some point, you know, are they going to lose their enthusiasm or is this intersection of Palmerado Road and Twin Peaks Road going to be this amazing free speech zone? And is it going to be a thing um, moving forward? And you see a lot of groups, you know, whether they're for Black Lives Matter or you know, for Trump or whatever. There are people that are organizing events, telling people show up on this day and bring your signs and and then are. You know, the, our friends on the left will also say, wear a mask. <laughs> friends on the right, they don't say that. Uh, but I wonder what the future of that intersection is. I also wonder um, for Jersey Mike's and those businesses there, has this been a net positive or a net negative? Because certainly there's a lot more people there. And I would hope that a lot of those people patronize those businesses. I don't know if that's true. Um, or is all the disruption and the chaos um harming their business? Uh, do people not want to park there because they don't want to get involved in all the riffraff? I don't know. I'd be curious to learn if, if you know, you know, by all means, let me know here in the live stream or contact me. You can always go to my website, John or find me on social media. Um, and I'm on Facebook and, and Twitter a lot. Uh, John Riley project on Facebook, John Riley Poway on Twitter. And let me know, cause I'd love to learn more about that. Uh, how the businesses are doing because there's like a liquor store there and, and then Jersey Mike's and what else is in that shopping center? Maybe a dry cleaner there. there you know, the dry cleaner is probably not happy about it. The liquor store might be happy. Uh, Jersey Mike's might be happy, but I don't know about the dry cleaner. Um, okay. So uh, a couple more things. I am watching the crown right now on Netflix. Season four just came out. Yeah, it's a great show. And I really enjoyed the first three uh, seasons of this. Now we're in season four, and this is all about Lady Di. I mean, that's the dominant uh, storyline and her engagement and wedding with Prince Charles and the challenges they had in their marriage. And I think I'm, am I about to, I think there's 10 episodes. I think I might've just finished episode six. So I've got a, about four more to go. But I'm learning things as I'm going through this, and it's great. Now, granted, in the earlier episodes, I learned a ton. It was like an, a, like a walking history lesson, or not a walking, but you know, you're walking through history, so you learn a lot more. And you know, for the most part, the royal family was never of big interest to me. It was like this thing that 
that people that love fairy tales paid attention to. But, you know, I, I'm much more interested in history and I, I love learning about it from an historical perspective. And I learned so much in those earlier seasons about the way the abdication of the throne worked and, and how um, Queen Elizabeth uh, ended up, you know, ended up becoming queen unexpectedly. Um, and then it was interesting to learn about, you know, her, uh, her husband, Prince Philip and how he entered the picture. Uh, it's, it's been fascinating. And then I also watched Victoria, which was also another great series. Um, and Vic- Victoria, of course, was during the 19th century, during the 1800s and learned there about the German influence with the crown. And that was fascinating, too. But now, um, you know, we're now in the 1980s and there were a couple of things that I learned that I didn't know about. And one of them was, is there was an episode uh, that was entirely about the intruder that broke into Buckingham Palace and actually got into the queen's bedroom and had a conversation with the queen. And it was amazing. And, you know, this person, this is back when Thatcher, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. It was in the early 80s when we were going through still a lot of economic turmoil, not just in England, but also in America. And there was tremendous unemployment and there was a lot of people that were struggling. This particular character was going through a lot of problems in his personal life and with his career and was trying to get someone to listen to him and no one would pay him attention. And finally, he just broke into Buckingham Palace and he had an audience with the queen. And it was cool. Um, It was a little bit scary for the queen, but it was an interesting episode. And there was another part of it that was interesting to me because I do a lot of my own genealogy research. I do a lot of my own ancestry work. I got an account on ancestry.com and, you know, I, I do, I love researching my family. Well, apparently there was a branch of the tree, um, of the, of the, is it the Windsors or I don't know what their last name would be, but it was a branch of the Royal family, a bit of an offshoot that there were, uh, cousins that were mentally ill. You know, maybe they had down syndrome or maybe they had some other condition and they were put away in an institution and they were declared dead um, officially uh, in, in all the official record books and by the family. Um, but yet they were alive and they were living and they knew their family and they knew they were related to the Royal family. And what was interesting is, is that they, the family made a decision that because um, the whole notion of a royal family has been decreed, you know, this divine right of kings that essentially God has ordained this family to rule over England and the United Kingdom. It was interesting how they made a rationalization that they couldn't have any blemishes in their blood, in the royal blood, in the family tree. And so they felt that they had to banish uh, these adults that were mentally ill, uh, that had disabilities, um, had to banish them to institutions to protect the bloodline and the name of the crown. And it was heartbreaking. And, And granted, this was, you know, 35 years ago. Times are different now, but I'm not sure how different they are. But it was sad that they did that. And I know the episode talked a lot about Princess Margaret 
and she was dealing with some of her own mental health issues and it made her question if it was hereditary, some of the challenges that she was facing. It turned out it wasn't. But um, that was an interesting episode as well that I learned a lot about the royal family. So it's, the, the Crown is just a really, really good program. Um, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, my buddy Jack recommended I watch the the movie Gonzo, which is about Hunter S. Thompson. And I've watched about three quarters of that movie and I had to step away from it. I need to go back and finish it. That one is really interesting, too. And, you know, I've never read, uh, was it Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? And I know you did a book about the Hells Angels. Um, I've never been a big Hunter S. Thompson fan. I don't know who he was and what he's all about, but I learned a lot about him too. I mean, apparently he ran for sheriff in Aspen, Colorado, and he almost won. Um, you know, he's definitely a, a rebel, uh, a great author, um, but a, a guy that understood the counterculture and, you know, there's a lot of drugs and motorcycles and guns and all kinds of dangerous things uh, that make him pretty much of an outlaw kind of a character. Uh, so I'm enjoying that as well. And, and thanks to Jack for recommending it. And I know there's a couple of other movies about Hunter S. Thompson. I know, I think it was it Johnny Depp, I think, did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, never saw that. But now I'm kind of thinking I want to check that out, too. It's fun to learn about um, some of these figures, but I, I, you know, I don't really ever watch regular TV anymore unless it's sports or in some cases, if it's, uh, uh, it might be news, but, or a Seinfeld rerun. <laughs> Otherwise I'm always watching streaming media and cause there's so much good stuff out there. And I, I enjoyed that. Um, what else? Uh, just a few more things to comment on. Um, I made reference to a family, uh, friends of ours that lived here in Poway and they recently sold their home. And what was amazing is, is that this was, I won't go into too specific of detail, but their home was worth well over a million dollars and it sold almost immediately. And they had multiple offers above the asking price. Like, holy moly. Um, and they ended up moving out of town and uh, they moved to Florida. And this is a family that our family had, had, had a few times had done Thanksgiving together with their family. We had done that numerous times. So these are really good people and they have children that are the same ages of our children, but both of their children have moved out. So they were empty nesters. Um, they had one that graduated from college, one that's in college, kind of the same deal as us. Um, but they, um, he had since, left his job that he had worked here that, came, that drove them to Poway uh, or to San Diego in the first place. And he started a new business and that new business didn't necessarily require him to be in San Diego. And so they didn't really have any ties here. So they sold and they moved to, to Florida and now they live on the beach in Florida and they're not paying any state income tax. There's a lot easier to do business in Florida. Um, and it's um, a lot less expensive cost of living. Housing is a lot less. And you hear these stories and there's a whole movement of people that are all about leaving California. And I, I'm still fascinated by the idea. Um, I've lived in California my whole life and I'd love to experience something different. And someday I hope to. Uh, right now I can't. <laughs> uh, there's just too much going on in my my life and my family. But uh at some point, I hope to, um, but I see some people moving and see people leaving California. 
some people leave because they can't afford to live here anymore because housing is so expensive and they just can't get a good enough job to pay uh, what they need. And they've ended up moving to Tennessee or Arkansas or Nevada, and they've been able to have a much more comfortable life, largely because housing is so much more affordable. But then there are other people that are really have no problem affording to live in California, like this family I'm speaking of, but they just wanted to escape to really maximize their financial situation and to have a easier place to do business and to save money on taxes. Because California is unquestionably the highest tax state in America. Uh, when you look at income tax and sales tax and gas taxes and and even property taxes are really expensive here too, even though the rate might seem the the property tax rate might seem like it's around the middle of the 50 states. The fact that houses are so damn expensive here makes the property tax bill really expensive. So I don't know. I just was, I've been thinking about them and I just saw a post today on Facebook that they, they finally made it. They drove cross country. They, you know, they obviously had the movers, but now it was, it was just left to them. They're, their car, their dogs, and the final things, and they just made it, and they arrived this morning. So good for them. Uh, but I think about that a lot. You know, this whole idea of leaving California, to me, it's an interesting idea. Um, what else? Uh, I think, you know, we're at about an hour. So I, I'm going to wrap it up with, with a final quote. And it's kind of along the lines of what I talked about with this notion of canceling student debt. And this is a quote from... Uh, the Nobel Prize winner in economics, uh, Milton Friedman, who I enjoy quoting from. And he has a really famous quote, and he lifted it from someone else, but essentially it is, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch, because that means if you think you're getting it for free, it ain't free because someone else is paying. (laughs) You might actually be paying and not realize it. Uh, In other cases, you um, are just shifting the payment of that thing to someone else. And ultimately, that's what I think canceling student debt is about. You, the person with the debt, good for them. Their, their debt is erased. But in my opinion, that's very immoral because it just shifts that debt to other people, innocent people, people that had nothing to do with that student's education, but yet they are going to have to shoulder the burden. They're going to have to carry the load. And to me, that's, that's wrong. That's immoral. And so when I see these notions, uh, this call for canceling student debt, sometimes it feels gimmicky to me. It feels like this is how politicians are attracting people to vote for them because it's like giving away free candy. Um, But in the end, (laughs) Someone has got to pay and there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if you enjoy the, the podcast um, or if you want to learn more, you know, reach out to me on social media. Visit my website, johnreillyproject.com. There you can visit and check out all of our episodes. I have them all there. I've got a blog uh, where I, I write articles and things I'm thinking about. I also have a journal on my website that talks a lot about how I started the podcast. Um, and then I've got a couple of posts of some new things I've been doing, but I walk people through this whole process of how I started it, why I started it, the things I bought, the technology I purchased to make it work. If that's of interest to you, I have that on my website 
go to johnreillyproject.com and and there's a journal. Just look in the menu system, you'll find it. But I would love to have you sign up for my uh, email list. I'm going to really begin to aggressively start using that. Let me actually, let me rephrase that. Sounds like I'm going to spam people. That's not what I mean. Um, I'm going to start using it for what it's intended to be used for is to keep people updated. I've been gathering and collecting emails, but I hadn't really started sending out information. Uh, But I will do that. And I'm going to start sending out more info about what I'm doing on this project. I could tell you one big update on the project is tomorrow um, I'm going to have an Ethernet cabling person come to my house. And he's going to string my Ethernet cable from my router in my office into my living room, which means the podcast can move out of my office finally and go back into its original location in my living room with that big purple curtain and my round sign. And and so you'll start seeing that again, which I'm really excited about. Um, that room is just perfect for the podcast acoustically and it's separate, you know, cause right now I'm in my office and I converted, this is like an office slash man cave. And I kind of reconfigured it and moved things in my living room and then move things from my living room in here. Well, now I'm going to be able to move it all back. And I'm really excited about that. So that's going to be coming here pretty soon. Um, but anyways, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I really appreciate your support. Um, again, a big thank you to Jamie Tobit and Todd Felton from the Imperial Sands Garrison of the 501st Legion. We talked about Star Wars and their cosplay and how they dress up as, as, as stormtroopers and as Darth Vader and as sand people. And they go out and do great work in the community, doing charitable work and helping people and making people smile. And I thought, but that was a great episode. Um, so looking forward to learning more about their group. And I encourage you to go check them out. Uh, but anyways, thanks again for watching. I'll be back to you Friday. We're doing this every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 p.m. And I'll keep the ball rolling to the best of my ability. And uh, we'll talk to you later, friends. Bye-bye.